What is up, everyone, and welcome to episode 490 of Combo's Court, and I am Combo. This episode was recorded in Las Vegas, Nevada. A little bit of a change of pace. Michael Easter returns to the podcast, this time in person. Michael is a UNLV professor and author of The Comfort Crisis. We discussed AI, the benefits of pull-ups, evolutionary psychology, and more. Just a fantastic conversation with Michael. You can catch Michael on Instagram at Michael underscore Easter. That's M-I-C-H-A-E-L underscore E-A-S-T-E-R. You know you can find me on Instagram at 12combo. That's O-N-E-T-W-O-C-O-M-B-O. Intro music by Luca Beats. Let's get into it. Michael Easter, the comfort crisis professor at UNLV. Welcome back to Combo's Court. This time a little bit different, though. I know, a little bit different. No Zoom. I feel like we're out of the pandemic. We're in person. This yeah. is awesome. Yeah. Thanks most, for having me back, man. Oh, most definitely. Most definitely. Anytime. It's great being here in Vegas. I feel like when people come to Vegas, all they think about is the strip, you know, yes. gambling. Mm-hmm. But what is it like for you living in Vegas? So I equate the strip to adult Disneyland, more or less. Okay. Now, people will say, oh, I don't like Vegas. And I'll ask, okay, well, like, where'd you go? Right. And be like, oh, well, I was on the strip. It's like, okay, that's like going to LA, only going to Disneyland and being like, I hate Los Angeles as a whole. You miss, you miss <laughs> the larger experience, right. right? The city outside of Vegas, or outside of the strip, rather, is pretty cool. It's uh, there's amazing outdoor opportunities. Like it's, I think it's one of the best outdoor towns in the country. There's a lot of famous rock climbers who live here. Like, uh, Alex Honnold lives here. Okay. The free solo guy. Okay. The food scene is amazing. Yes. Because there's so many people work in the service industry. There's a ton of um different options for food. Like but then different culinary that's traditions. all near the strip, so you kind of could get mixed up in the strip with that, right? Yes. So you get in and out. If you want to go to <laughs> Disneyland as an adult, you can. Right. So right. like. I'll go to concerts all the time because everyone comes through here. If you want some like crazy meal by some chef that you saw on the Food Network, you can get that on the strip. Yeah. There's everything going on in the strip, but the city around it is pretty normal. It's interesting. You see some weird stuff. Don't get me wrong. Oh, you think? It is Vegas, but it's it's a pretty normal city. It's interesting when artists are maybe a little bit past their prime. I don't know if that's unfair. They like come here and get a residency oh, and yeah. they get another bag. Oh, they, yeah. Cash the checks, dude. Cash the checks and they fill the rooms and they'll do them. Um, the great example of that. And Elvis, Elvis, Elvis is a classic example. Even yeah. larger scale is the country musician, George Strait. Okay. I don't know if he still does it. He used to come to Vegas four weekends a year and so he'd do three nights four times a year and he would fill up t-mobile like every time yeah and he probably couldn't do that anywhere else for some reason right no No, he's just cashing checks dude just cashing checks i mean good on him yeah because everybody's here to party so they will go watch that artist that they love maybe like 20 years ago well it's a draw it's like would i go fly let's say i live in um i don't know maine 
Would I fly to Cleveland to see George Strait? No. no. Would I fly to Las Vegas to see George Strait? Yes, because there's well, a million and- other things you can do. That's it. Exactly. So you're a professor at UNLV, but I really know nothing that goes on with you and UNLV. Are you discussing what you discuss on social media and what you do with your books in class or is it like different topics? It depends on, it depends on the class. So I teach, I always teach three classes. One of them is a big intro to media class. It's like 150 students every Monday, 8.30 a.m. They're all half asleep. The other two are upper division writing classes, basically. So with my intro to media class, we're looking at like big picture trends in media, um, what that means for their life moving forward when they graduate, all that kind of stuff. So in that class, I'll bring in larger topics in media. Like, how is the media business changing? How are journalists making a living now? You know, what should we think about this platform versus this platform? Whereas with the writing classes, it's very much like, here's how you write a feature story for a magazine. And we get into the nitty gritty. Here's how you find a source, how you interview a source, how you quote them, how you do all these things. You know what I mean? It's, it's much more in depth. So just kind of depends on the class. I had a feeling there was some evolutionary psychology going on in UNLV. <laughs> there, there might be. Yeah. <laughs> Is that something you ever taught? Uh, no, no. Okay. But it's something you're very into. Yes. Something I'm very into. I mean, I'll bring it in when we talk about, it depends on what we're talking about in class. I try and give students the reason why. So it's like, okay, when the day, for example, we talk about news, we'll talk about, all right, 90% of news is negative. And it's like, okay, well, why is that? I know where you're going with this. And that's because people focus on negative information. So why do we focus on negative information? It's because in the past, focusing on negative information as humans were evolving would have given you a survival advantage. So let's say we have two people. We have one person who focuses on negative information, one person who focuses on positive information. Right. And in the scene we're looking at, there is a beautiful flower and there is a saber-toothed tiger, right? So positive person's like, oh, look at the beautiful flower. Well, the negative person is going, that animal is going to kill us, takes off. And so the animal eats the person who's... Into that's, the positive. <laughs> that's why we notice the negative comment over the positive comment. Yes. Yes. Social issues. Yeah. So we, you know, humans evolved to protect their social status. It's one of the main things that we look out for. We're very social creatures. When we feel like our social status is being um, attacked, we focus in on that. It hits us emotionally. And so, yeah, to your point about the negative comments, like if you post an Instagram post with a clip from the podcast, and a hundred people are like, this interview's rad. And one person goes, that was a, that was a dumb question. You're like, screw that guy. hundred percent. And the rest of the day, you're like, man, that, that freaking guy. Right. Yeah. Even though we know this and we have a peek behind the hood, do you still ever fall victim to that? I've gotten, I've gotten pretty immune to it. Really? Um, it depends on how dumb the comment is. I mean, people who are just dumb, it's just like, I, it's just like Teflon. If someone has a good point. That actually, um, I'll be like, oh, I didn't think of that. I'm a dumbass. So that could actually help you. But it can actually help me. Because then I'm like, oh, I'm going to look into that. Right? And I usually don't. I don't spend a lot of time replying to negative stuff because it's like, I can just use that as like fodder for a story down the road rather than spending the time to answer one comment that one person's going to see. It's like, if it's a good point, like why not just do a newsletter or like use it as a talking point after some research, you know? Yeah. I mean, we've seen a lot of layoffs, ESPN. Where do you think the future of media and sports media is going? Will it be more fragmented? I think so. I think it'll be people like you, individuals, you know, who are going off and doing their own thing. Um, 
it's it's going to be interesting. I don't I'm not as familiar with the ESPN like the the larger media property situation, but I will tell you coming from a writing background that the people who have done well after leaving magazines are the ones who have figured out how to they basically used the large platform like yes. an ESPN, like a whatever it is to build an audience and then they went, "Okay, I'm going over to Substack or I'm starting a podcast or I'm doing And whatever. it's time to really get to work at that point. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so it's like, all right, if you had a million people who watched you on ESPN and then you made this big announcement, I'm leaving for this platform, come with me. And even 10% of them come with you. Well, yeah. that's a hundred thousand people. And then you go, all right, like half the stuff is free, but like half of it's behind a paywall. And if you want to pay for it, it's X dollars. And even if 10% of those go, okay, I'll pay for that. Like you're making a better living than you were at ESPN. Yeah. You know? crazy so i have to ask you about this because i've been asking actually asking a few college students about it and they had no great answer for me um i use chat gpt like i actually uh crafted an email from it and i got a great response and something great came out of it mm -hmm. but what's ai's influence on higher learning i think that yeah this is a good question because i only ask the good questions michael yeah, Come on, yeah. You know. <laughs> so i sit in i'll sit in meetings at unlv with other professors and a lot of the talk around it is we need to figure out a way to make sure that students are not using this to cheat and write papers. Like well, we they are, right? But they are. Right. Now, the papers, you can often tell if they've been written by ChatGPT. Um, the writing could be better in a lot of ways. But I view it more as how do we teach people to use this in a way, like any tool, to enhance their lives and have a better career. My job as a professor is not to give you a bunch of information. My job as a professor is to help you help yourself so you can go get a job in the future. Now, if you come into an office and there's two candidates for a job, right? And you're one of them, there's some other person. Mm -hmm. You've been told, oh no, chat GPT is evil. Don't use it. Cause like we made this rule at the university and someone else is like, oh, I know I can use chat GPT to produce 10 times the work for the same salary. Like I'm hiring that person, right? So we need to figure out, okay, how do we teach students to use this as a tool to save time? Do how do you, do you use it? Um, I will, I've used it a couple times. I haven't found it super, you know what I've used it for? Headlines. So I could- So I wrote this, give me a headline for it. Yeah, here's copy, or I'll just be like, here's what the story's about. Come up with 30 headlines. 30 because I could sit there for five minutes and come up with 30 headlines or I could sit there for five seconds and just read the ones chat GPT comes up with and go with those. Yeah. Usually when you ask something from chat GPT, it'll be really general and then you could like taper it up a little bit, you know, around the edges yeah. and make it better. Um, I agree. I agree. It's going to get better too, which is, do you feel it's scary and do you feel there's some fear mongering going on? I think that there's probably, yeah, I think there's probably too much fear mongering. Um, you know, there's like these two camps that AI is going to end the world. And then there's this other that's going to say it's going to save it. Um, I think it's probably going to be like anything where it's somewhere in the middle. Right. Like social media. They probably thought this about, yeah. right? In a lot yeah. of ways, social media is great. Like, I'm pretty sure that's how you and I first connected. Yes. Right. That's why we're here. Now we're sitting here. Yeah. 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 And we're friends now. Yeah. That would have never happened without social media. At the same time. I think we all know that social media can drive people crazy. It's 
changed how we spend our lives in a way that I don't think people are going to look back on and be like, man, I'm so glad I spent so much time on TikTok. Like that was just the rewarding life for me. Right. I don't think that's the case. So yeah. What, pro- what protocols do you have in your life to limit screen time? If at all? Um, yeah, it's one of those things where I think if I had a different job, I wouldn't be on it. But the reality of being an author in 2023 is that you need to be on it. Like your publisher will basically be like, we're not giving you a book contract unless you are on social media. Um, so I very much try and ask myself, am I using this in a way right now that aligns with it being for work? and I can get, I can still get like these side benefits of making friends off it and all these things. But like, am I using it in a way that is moving the ball downfield towards this larger goal of being an author and getting my message out as an author? Yeah. Like, you know, with me, it's like first hour of the day, I don't touch it. Last hour of the day, I don't touch it. Do you find yourself scrolling ever? You're like, what am I doing? Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, everyone does because there's people who are very smart designing these things to do that. Right. To keep you engaged. Yeah. And there, and it kind of goes back to like my next book gets a lot into why the underlying reasons why social media is so compelling and that system of kind of searching for something that's going to be it's much like playing a slot machine um for me i mean i very much like i don't use it in the morning it's not like i have any rule it's just that i go straight to my computer and start writing and my phone's in another room um which is a screen in itself which is a screen in itself yeah (laughs) at least i'm using it for something good (laughs) right right no it is interesting how much time we spend on screens now though yeah do you ever write with just like pen paper no not your thing. No, no, dude. Like I, it's been so long since I've even written significantly with pen and paper that if I have to write like a handwritten note to someone now, I mean, my hand is like kind of tired after like, it's not as efficient. No. Yeah. Our hands are just like have atrophied from that. You remember as a kid, you'd have to write like so much and your hand would just be like, it was like the Lance Armstrong of writing. Right. Wasn't my favorite thing to do. Yeah. yeah, That was it. And it's, it's amazing how much more I like reading these, these days than uh, when I was in school, because you could read what you want to read. Right. And now what somebody tells you, I got to read this quote for you. you, Are you familiar with uh, Naval Ravikant? Yes. All screen activities link to less happiness. All non-screen activities link to more happiness. Do you believe that to be true? No, it's too general. Right. Because you could be learning something on your screen. It's a tool. How are you going to use it? Yeah. Like I said, you and I just connected on social media. We've had good conversations on social media. We've left each other comments that are life enhancing. I've learned things on a screen. Um, I've gotten to places that I wouldn't have known how to get to otherwise with a screen. I've read books on a screen. I've like I could just say we could have an entire podcast of all the ways a screen has enhanced my life. Um, we could have an t- entire podcast about all the ways it hasn't enhanced my life. So what that means to me is that there's some element of choice. Right? Yeah. It's like, how are you going to use it? Yeah. It's like, did, you know, it, it's like, it's like a weapon almost. Right. It's like, it can be used to like liberate a country or take over a country. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, and and the, and the idea that like everything that happens outside of a screen is going to be good isn't right either, right? <laughs> right, right. You could do a lot. I mean, before there were screens, there was a lot of bad things happening. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. If anything, I mean, especially too, if you look at um, developing countries, the 
the invention of the cell phone and those sort of networks has brought in a lot of education and information to people who otherwise wouldn't have it. Yeah. Right. And so I think it's maybe it's easy to feel like your life has gotten worse in the, you know, sort of economy that we live in because we spend too much damn time on TikTok or Instagram or whatever. But the reality is, is it's like, how are you going to use it? Yeah. This gets to the boredom conversation, which you're an expert on, in my opinion. Um, I would say that I get my best ideas when I'm not on a screen though, like just taking a walk. What I do, what I do have to do a better job of is carrying like a notebook with me or something to write the ideas down. But why is that? And do you find that for yourself as well? Yes, I definitely find it for myself. My best ideas are when I'm walking out in the desert with my dog, um, or running out in the desert. And the reason for that is because your mind can wander basically. Yeah. Um, and especially I think when you're in nature, there's this um mode that neuroscientists call it's kind of a strange name it's called soft fascination and basically what happens is that if you think about meditation as being this thing where you're sort of like lightly focusing on your breath like present right it's almost like outward meditation where you're sort of just taking in nature and there's something about that that seems to be calming it reduces stress but it also can lead to good ideas more or less Essentially, when when your brain, when you have these mind-wandering sessions where you can't do anything, your brain starts to just go into some strange places. So not everything that you think of is going to be productive, right? right? But sometimes you, all of a sudden, bing, things come up and you're like, that's a good idea. Yeah. And to your point about the notebook, you got to write it down. Yeah, <laughs> man, because it, it goes, it goes, you know, into your mind and right back into the air if you don't write it. I yeah. need like a little notebook when I walk around Masogi. Yeah. Tell me more, man. Um, what else do you want to know? What is it? I mean, I know, but yeah, for the listeners for, yeah, for people who haven't heard. So, um, <clears throat> the, I, to, so I'll give you the sort of background. And I learned about this from a guy whose name is Marcus Elliott, who you maybe know him cause he runs uh, P3. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I've had people from P3 on the pod. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so exactly. He, he founded P3. So P3, um, for people who are sort of in the basketball know it's this performance training center. Right. And what they've done that's interesting is that they have applied um, big data AI to human movement. So when you show up as a player, let's say that you're going through their system, they're going to attach all these basically reflectors all over your body. And they're going to have you do all the movements that you would do in a game. And then they're going to film that and then they can see exactly how you move and they can predict your injury risk. They could be like, oh, well, when you yeah. when you land, your knee caves in X degrees and like that's associated with a 60% chance. It's making my knee hurt you saying that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's a long way of saying that they're very much data people, this guy is, and he's really changed the game with that. But he also realizes that what really improves someone's potential and what they are capable of, you can't necessarily measure it, right? There's certain people on teams where it's the fourth quarter, we got 10 seconds left. It's like that dude is solid. Yeah. Give him the ball, right? Yeah. So like, what's that? So this guy came up with this idea called Misogi. And the idea is that once a year, you're going to go out into nature and you're going to do something really, really challenging. There's two rules. Make it really hard. Don't die. 
<laughs> so make it really hard is defined by saying you should have a 50 50 shot maybe rule two should be rule one <laughs> we don't want to die say that yeah <laughs> <laughs> i didn't make the rules i just abide by them okay um so that really hard is defined by saying you should have a 50 50 shot at finishing whatever task you take on and the reason for that is because today when people take on challenging tasks, they usually know they're going to finish them, right? Like think about how people- Then it's not that challenging, right? Yeah. It's yeah. like if people people don't say, I don't know if I'm going to finish a marathon. They say, I don't know if I'm going to finish a marathon in four hours. So you're saying my workout this morning was BS. <laughs> no, it's fine. I mean, you can't be doing Masogis every day. Um, and what tends to happen is that when you have a really tough challenge like that, especially out in nature, you get to a point where you think you have to quit more or less, you're like, I'm done. I can't keep going. But if you keep going, then you can look back and see, oh, I thought my edge was back there, but I'm clearly past it. So I undersold myself there. And then you have to make the jump. Okay, well, what else in my life am I selling myself short in? Where am I underselling what I'm capable of? Right? And that can change a person moving forward. And this is based on, I mean, there's some, we talked a little bit about evolutionary psychology before. It's like, when you think about how humans lived in the past, we used to have to do these challenging things in nature all the time to survive, right? You get thrust into some crazy challenge. You didn't know if you're going to make it out. You thought you weren't going to make it out, but you'd have to keep going and you would learn something from that. And what you would learn is that you're capable of more than you thought. And that changes you. Yeah. Speaking of that, do you have any idea, like if we put maybe a Fitbit on somebody from the hunter gatherer era, like what, what would be the amount of movement that they did? Is there any way to learn that? And cause I know you do a lot of research on this. Yeah. So they, um, people in the past probably moved about 14 times more than the average American today. And when, uh, researchers will put basically Fitbits and pedometers, GPS trackers on hunter, modern hunter, hunter gatherers, they yeah. find at least, I think the average is like 21,000 steps a day. Wow. Yeah. And you also have to realize that you know, we might take a bunch of steps, but then when we sit, we're in chairs. Um, we're not carrying stuff as much when right. we walk. These people are, if they're resting, they're in a squat. If they're gathering, they're carrying stuff the whole time. Like it's just a far more active lifestyle. And the the big takeaway though, for the average person is that that level of activity is probably what humans are adapted for. So one of the reasons we have such high rates of chronic disease is because we're not as active as we were in the past, like at all. Like the average person takes like 5,000 steps now, four to 5,000. We used to take 21,000, not to mention all these other things, right? So our physiology is more like, I do pretty well when I'm at this level of activity. Once you drag us below that, we start to get sick. So some people will say exercise is medicine. I don't think it is. I think it's more that inactivity is like a toxin. How'd we get to this point? Oh, we just, we engineered the world to be more comfortable, less effortful, which it, it makes sense because we're wired to do the comfortable thing. Um, but once you start adding like cars, you no longer have to walk, escalators, you don't have to take stairs, um, our food system, like when's the last time you went out and had to like hunt and gather your food, all these different things, even though they're advancements in progress and they're good, um, we lose something 
by having all that progress. And what we lost is a lot of movement. Yeah. Yeah. Is there an element of we're a victim of our own success? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. Yeah. Yeah. There's going to be side effects. Now, at the same time, I would rather be in the situation that we are in now where I get to choose whether I'm going to exercise. I'm not forced to because it's like, oh, if you don't go run down this animal, you're going to starve to death. Yeah. (laughs) Right? Um, I'd rather be like, well, I'm surrounded in ample food and now I got to choose to exercise. But the tough part now is having to choose to exercise. Yeah. Speaking of animals, you study animals as well. Is there anything we could learn from animals in general, animals in general or a specific animal about maybe athletic development? Yeah, I think a lot. Um, I just had this like thread on Instagram about how sled dogs are the most they're the best endurance animal best endurance mammal so scientists measure endurance basically by vo2 now one of the highest vo2s ever recorded was lance armstrong when he was at his peak and his was like 80 something yeah um sled dogs when they're training have a vo2 of 300 so they can run a sub four minute mile for 100 miles in a row like imagine that it's crazy. Yeah. So now um, scientists are starting to study the dogs and see if there's anything they can do to sort of get those effects in in people. Yeah. Yeah. You've talked about carrying and that we're the only species that could carry things for long periods of yeah. time. And how much of that has, we just talked about um, we're a victim of our, of our own progress, yeah. but how much of that has helped our progress in humanity? Oh, the carrying? Yeah. Oh, it's it's what allowed us to basically take over the world. I mean, there's a lot of things that had to line up. I'm not saying this is the only thing, because obviously we had to be very smart. We had to think very imaginatively. Creative, yeah. Communication, our communication is pretty good. Um, But carrying basically allowed us to take tools into the unknown. And it allowed us to um, carry food, carry items, carry all these different things. And so if we can't do that, um, we'd probably still be somewhere in the you know just like this little group of this weird species so yeah you've talked about before um that if life is too easy or too hard it could lead to mental health problems Mm -hmm. but how do you find that sweet spot well i think that one of my messages is that you know you as you apply it to the individual or like i'll give you an example of how i think about it It's like, I think the world has gotten a lot safer and better over time. Yes. Like that's a fact. That's a fact. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, but we still have this brain that sort of looks for problems. This is this idea. Um, I call it problem creep in the comfort crisis. It has a door. It's official name is much like more scientific and dorky. Um, so for me, it's, it's a question of what do I consider a problem. Is this a problem in the grand scheme of time and space? Right. I mean, look at like the problems in your life. Like if you, um, let's say you don't have enough money. It's like, well, yeah, that sucks. But like you're living better than a king would have lived 400 years ago. (laughs) I know. Yeah. If you run out of money, it's not like, well, tough. Like there are safety nets for people in society today. Now, I'm not saying that that's not relatively worse, um, but I am saying that today we are generally living better. Even the people who might be 
living relatively less better, you know, like less wealthy people versus the wealthy people, um, we have things pretty good. And so I think by obsessing about sort of what we problems and what we might consider them, I think we sometimes lose some perspective and that can limit us because it's better to think, okay, well, how can I just improve my situation from what it is now realizing that I have it Yeah, pretty good. We're always searching for something. As you said, do you feel that desire has impact when it comes to unhappiness? You know, like the Buddhist thing. And I mean, Naval always talks about this, how you'll be happier if you just had no desires, but then we would never accomplish anything. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I think that, uh, I think he's probably right on that. Uh, but how do you have no desires? Like, what are you going to do? Go live in a cave? Like no one's going to, well, not only that, there wouldn't be, there wouldn't be people without like sexual desire. Right. Right. There (laughs) would be people. And it's like, I mean, it's, it's correct, but it's correct, but completely useless. (laughs) Right. It's like saying, well, you'd be, you would be a lot faster if you just run a four minute mile. It's like, well, yeah, no, but like (laughs) the problem is like, I'm never going to run a four minute mile. Yeah. (laughs) Right. You'd be a lot richer if you just made money. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You've Uh, told, but but the, the fundamental, I think probably what he's more trying to get to though, is that if you can start to realize that and maybe reframe those desires or control them more, um, get a better perspective on them, your life will improve. And I do 100% agree with that. Is that like a form of meditation? Probably just sitting in with yourself and not desiring anything for like a certain amount of time a day. And how do we, you know, it's just interesting. Like how could we implement that in our lives for like short periods of time? You think that is, do you think that's helpful? Yeah. I think a lot of a good thing to do is ask, well, why do I want this thing in the first place? You know, I think. Well, that, that might really hurt people because they might've put so much time into something and realize like. Yeah. You know, and then, or like, you know, when you reach the mountaintop, that's been really tough for people, right? Something they wanted their whole life. They got there and then they're like, now what? Yeah. You climb the ladder the whole time and realize you had the ladder on the wrong damn house or something. Right? <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. I think just asking why you want thing, why do you desire whatever you desire in the first place? And once you start to unpack that, I think that can lead to some interesting conclusions that would maybe change people's perspective. Yeah. You've talked about, you're sober now, you've talked about your alcoholism in the past. And going back to our other conversation, was that the sweet spot for you? That life too easy, life too hard? Was that the sweet spot to make you happy inevitably? I think so. I mean, I definitely know that I would be, I mean, possibly dead, definitely unhappy if I kept drinking. And I also know that it wasn't easy to get sober, you know? So that's where a lot of the initial ideas around my book, The Comfort Crisis, came from is that I was doing, you know, I see a lot of it as in modern life, um, choosing short-term comfort, it often leads to long-term problems. Yeah. Long-term growth happens by basically embracing short-term discomfort and you get a long-term benefit. So take the example of getting sober. It's like, I don't want to get sober because like it's uncomfortable in the short term to not drink when you're, when you're an alcoholic. So by choosing short-term comfort, that is like, I can fix all my problems by just having a drink, right? That's really easy. It's yeah. just, bam, problem goes away immediately. Um, but then the problems happen in the long run, right? So I think reframing that I had to realize, oh, I need, I'm going to be like really uncomfortable for a while. And it's probably never going to go away to some extent, but my life is going to get much better in the long run. Yeah. Right? But you have to figure out which discomfort 
is discomfortable a word? Say it. Well, we'll call it a word. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. That, like, you have to find out which of those works best for you because there's some kind of discomfort that's probably not beneficial, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, like, you think about, like, exercise uncomfortable in the short term. We know it's good for you in the long run. Um, if you are overweight and you want to lose weight, you're probably going to be hungry. That's uncomfortable, but your health is going to improve in the long run. There's so many examples of that. And are you an life. intermittent fast guy? Um, I almost do it on accident and that I eat breakfast so late. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, some of that is from the hunter gatherer, right? Like they didn't eat probably for long periods of time and then they just ate a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I think that they definitely would have gone at least 24 hours sometimes without food. Yeah, and people would think that's unhealthy these days. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think fasting is becoming more popular, and um, I think it's probably – I think one of its main utilities is that if a person has never done it, uh, they learn that hunger is not necessarily an emergency. Most people, like, overthink hunger. They start to get a tiny bit hungry, and they're like, oh, my God, this is going to keep building and building and building, and then my head's going to explode. And I'm going to die. And it's like, no, you kind of will feel it for a minute and then you'll get busy and you'll forget it. And then it'll kind of come back. And like, it's never that bad for just 24 hours. And so that experience teaches you that sometimes being hungry, it's not going to kill you. Like you're going to be fine. And then that way, when you get in a, another situation, you're like, okay, I don't need to like slam a bunch of chocolate pretzels right now because I'm a little bit hungry, even though I know I'm going to eat dinner in like an hour. Yeah. Benefits of pull-ups. Talk to me because I do pull-ups often, oh, so I'd yeah. like to leave, uh, hear your thoughts on it. How tall are you? 6'5". Oh, man. So they're harder. I want to tell my friends that they're harder for me than for you if you're shorter than me. Yeah. Because they think they are. I have friends that are like 5'8", uh, have... and they're like... Yeah. They're just cranking they think, them out. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think it's one of those exercises that is a good test of like, how are you doing physically in life? Because if you are... You have to be strong to do a pull-up, one, but you also have to be at a generally healthy body weight, right? True. It doesn't matter how strong you are. If your body weight is like 300 pounds, it's going to be really hard. Yeah. So it's a good um, check of upper body strength. It's a good check of your body weight. And also, I think most people who, especially if you sit at a desk all the time, you tend to kind of like slump over over time. Well, everything we're doing these days, right? Yeah. Yeah. Strengthen and pull that back. So, yeah. Would you also say that, um, decompression of the spine, right? You're hanging off something. Yeah. Hanging is great too. Hanging is especially good, um, for shoulder pain, shoulder problems. Yeah. yeah. I was surprised you didn't ruck here today, man. I should have. I was, that's what I was waiting for. Dude, when we were talking, you're like, how far is your house? And I'm like, ah, I should actually look that up. I looked it up. It says the walk is like five and a half hours. (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever done a walk like that with the ruck? Um, I've done. Yeah, actually one time I did one that was, it was a go ruck event. So we all had rocks on. Are you affiliated with them? Uh, I help them with stuff. I mean, we've, I've just become friends with them for so long. And then I wrote about them in the book and now it's like, they just call me and when they need advice and that sort of stuff. So, um, I did an event with them that was 24 hours. So we covered 50 miles and it was in New York city. So we're like all over the city, 24 hours straight, just like nonstop. And nobody knows what you're doing because it's in your backpack. They might just think it's like a few books, but yeah. you guys are like, super, yeah, there's just like all these people. There was, I think it started, the event started, there were 50 of us, I think 50, maybe 40 half dropped out in the first three hours because they kind of take you through a test just to see if you're like ready. For yeah. It. Um, 
and then maybe 10 more dropped off. So I think we finished with 15, but yeah, so there's 15 of us like middle of the night walking through like Brooklyn, Queens with these backpacks on and yeah. You like living in New York, Utah or Vegas best? Oh, good question. Probably they all have redeeming qualities. I would say- You gotta pick one, come on, man. I would say either Vegas or Utah. So the city I Damn, love- Damn, New York, you just left New York out of it? Well, I asked you for your favorite, all you did was just leave New York out of it. <laughs> I loved living in New York when I lived there. I am not wired for 24 seven New York, all New York, all the but time. But when you're in your humble abode, you could like get out of it in some kind of way, right? Kind or of, no. Kind of. I mean, for me- Or environment's like, everything. Well, for me, it's like me getting out is like, I'm going to go out into the desert. Like no one's out there, right? So it's different. It's different. Just knowing that in the back of your mind. Yeah. Yeah. You feel like a savage when you're out there by yourself, like, ah, right? Like, yeah, no, nobody's doing this like me. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's not only that, but it's like, you're just totally removed, you know? And it's very quiet and you can just kind of like think and. Does I, it let you know like what matters and what doesn't in a way? I think so. Yeah. I think the, the desert's interesting because like everything's dead. Nothing lives. Everything but you is rough. And yeah. Stockton. And it, yeah. And it reminds you like. <laughs> You know, it's a, it's an interesting place, but I do, I do love the city. I was just there a couple weeks ago, two, three nice. weeks ago or something. Let me know. We do another pod next time yeah, you're dude. in town. We, we will. That'd be cool. Well, yeah, let's get, we're down to the fourth quarter here to use basketball terminology. What advice would you give your 18 year old self knowing what you know now? Um, stop drinking. <laughs> no, I would tell myself, um, just follow what you're interested in and don't take yourself too seriously and have a good time. It's yeah. pretty simple. Yeah. Pretty simple. Have a good time. Follow what you're interested in. Be nice to people. Stop drinking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Oh, uh, scarcity brain. Tell me about this book. How is it different from comfort crisis? Yeah. So it looks at, um, why can't humans ever get enough? Right. We're a species that over consumes food stuff. We binge information. Um, we can't seem to get enough status based on our social media use. There's all these things that we just overdo. And so the question is, why is that? Why do we overdo these things? And it goes back to evolution that all the things that we most evolved to crave today would have given us a survival advantage in the past. But now we live in this abundance of all these things. You know, it's like there's food everywhere. The internet has more information than you could ever consume in an entire lifetime. Yeah. Social media puts status at scale, all these things. And we just don't seem to know how to manage it. Yeah. So it looks at that. It's kind of yeah. like the comfort crisis and that there's like this, you know, overarching narratives and travel and all that kind of wacky stuff. So. Yeah. 2%.com. Yeah. 2PCT.com. T-W-O-P-C-T. What are your favorite books? Give me a book that uh, has changed your life before we get out of here, especially when it comes to evolutionary psychology, if you can. Oh, I mean, I would say that if people are looking for a recommendation, a good one to start is Sapiens, just because, read you know, that. it's got a couple of flights. Have you read it? Yeah. Dude's yeah. from Israel, actually. Yeah. He yeah, is yeah, from yeah. Israel. Yeah. Um, super smart guy. Very, very well done in a way that's digestible. Um Story of the Human Body is also really good. If Never read that one. Evolutionary yeah. stuff. That one looks at more um, why are we built the way we are and 
built as in physically yeah physically built like how what is our how did our physiology evolve to be the way it is that one's really interesting um in terms of just a really well-written book that shaped me as a writer i would say under the banner of heaven is probably the best written and constructed nonfiction book i think i've read michael thanks so much for taking the time you're Dude, always welcome awesome. back on the show and talk soon in person in person we did it man i loved it man thank you anytime there it was thank you to everyone who tunes into combos court across the globe big shouts to michael for joining in person in las vegas nevada appreciate everyone who tunes into the show across the globe punch down on that subscribe button if you haven't already and be on the lookout for episode 491 combo out